Castle Biosciences is a proud sponsor of FRED and its residents with innovative approaches to improving patient care. Castle Biosciences is transforming the treatment of dermatological cancers by offering clinically actionable molecular tests that improve patient outcomes. For more information, visit castletestinfo.com. You're listening to Cutaneous Miscellaneous, the Dermatology Residence Podcast. This is Dr. Nick Brownstone, host of Cutaneous Miscellaneous. A few days ago, I was reflecting on our last episode, and I realized one of the stupidest things I've ever done was dropping my public speaking class in college. But I did go to the first day of class, and I remember the professor told the class that if you take away one tip from the semester, you'll be a great public speaker. And that tip was, if you ever get nervous, just imagine the audience in their underwear. So when I used to give talks, I would always start out by asking all the men to please leave the room. Thankfully, I'm a much better speaker and presenter now after interviewing Dr. Jocelyn Kirby on how to give the best presentation of your life. Well, enough about last episode. Let's jump into this one. I'm so excited to welcome you to episode four, and I'm equally excited to introduce our special guest. He's a dermatologist, dermatopathologist, attorney, and master's of engineering, and a professor of dermatology at Colorado University School of Medicine. So it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Whitney High. Dr. High, how are you doing today? I'm doing very good. Thanks very much. Great to have you on the show here. So we're going to start off with board review prep, as we always do. And I want to discuss uh, dermatological urgencies and emergencies with you. And the first topic I want to ask about is dress syndrome. As we all know, this is about a 10% mortality and develops two to six weeks after the drug, which is later than other drug reactions. So Dr. High, what are some tips on the dermatology board exams that we should look out for when answering these questions? Yeah, we see a lot of dress here uh, in the hospital on the consult service, and certainly you're correct in pointing out that it's a little later reaction, and that's always one significant clue, but there are some overlap cases with Steven Johnson and TEN on occasion, which I'm sure you'll cover in a minute. But, you know, some of the things that have been helpful in the past have been uh, uh, things like that facial plethora that they get, the facial edema, lymphadenopathy. They typically will have a peripheral eosinophilia, although they don't have to, and then the elevated liver function. So if I saw a vignette that had, you know, kind of those four things, I'd be thinking, gosh, they must be asking me something about dress. Okay, that's a really good tip. Like you mentioned, you know, I want to ask you about two other kind of related diseases, which is erythema multiforme and Stevens-Johnson syndrome. So in Stevens-Johnson syndrome, we see a confluent full thickness epidermal necrosis that's posy inflammatory. So can you give me some tips again on how to answer these questions or recognize this on the exam? Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, erythema multiforme and Stephen Johnson syndrome both should have, you know, minimal erythema or minimal inflammation, as you point out. And they should also have, you know, mostly overlying basket weave orthokeratosis in the stratum corneum. If you see a lot of perikeratosis and things, that's obviously a clue that something's been subacute or going on for a couple weeks. And that's not typical of most erythema multiforme and certainly not of Stephen Johnson syndrome. It's more fulminant than that. So when you look at the histology, I think that is important uh, to pay attention to the acuity of the process. Clinically, you know, Stephen Johnson syndrome has been described to have a lot of variants, uh, urticarial variants, all kinds of different things. But again, common things being common, when we see Stephen Johnson here, and unfortunately we do on the hospital service every single time I'm on consult service, uh, we see cases. And, you know, I, th I think targetoid lesions are very important. Uh, I think two mucosal surfaces are, are generally present in most cases. And I think, again, if a vignette started out with those kinds of things, you'd be very, very suspicious of the situation being uh, maybe a question about Stephen Johnson syndrome. How about treatment? Um, I've read things that say we should use 
steroids or cyclosporin or a Tannercept. What do you think the best treatment for Stevens-Johnson's is? You know, I, I, I cover this in the up-to-date uh, article. I, I'm one of the authors of the up-to-date article. Uh, and, and that is a very, very murky area. There isn't good, good data to support many of the things we do. Sometimes people give tens of thousands of dollars worth of IVIG, and there's very little evidence, at least from the European studies, that that actually makes a difference. So it is kind of a murky area. I think for Stephen Johnson, we'll very often do high-dose steroids for short durations, but you do have to worry about infection in some of these patients, uh, so we don't continue those for long periods of time. And then I think for TEN, there's probably more evidence for cyclosporin than anything else, um, but even then, uh, the evidence is not particularly robust. So I, I think the area is still being explored, and I don't think that there's any one single approach that you could say is absolutely uh, the only way to go. So I, I would imagine that questions might steer free of any kind of controversial areas and probably focus more on recognition. Uh, important things, you know, I've seen litigation that just simply involved whether the patient was sent to an ICU or a burn unit or sent to the floor. Uh, so, so some very simple things sometimes are, are what I would ex anticipate questions would, would focus upon. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I definitely agree with you. Obviously, not tested on the murky, controversial areas, but just make sure we know the morphology, how it looks histologically, things along those lines. And the last topic I want to ask about is staph scalded skin syndrome. Mm -hmm. It's there's a febrile prodrome, you know, widespread skin tenderness and pathogenesis. It's usually an infection by a uh, phage group two, so uh, staph aureus, uh, exfoliative toxins A is B is what it's mostly associated with. So again, a couple of tips on this for the exam. Yeah, you know, staph scalded skin is always a good thing. It, it, histologically, it can be very, very difficult to discriminate from bullous impetigo or uh, anything like that. So generally, we steer clear of those types of, of controversial questions on examinations and things of that nature. Uh, um, clinically, you know, what, one thing uh, you, people used to say is that they often have the faces of an unhappy clown. I'm, I'm not sure everybody knows exactly what an unhappy clown uh, looks like, but uh, it, it's somewhat apropos in that very often the facies has a lot of periorofacial crusting and scaling. And I, I think that's where that nomenclature came from. But I, I think unhappy clown faces. And then probably the other things that I'd look for in a question stem about staph scalded skin is it really affects, generally speaking, uh, younger patients with a high surface to volume ratio or adults with some type of renal compromise uh, because it is a systemic uh, toxin, as you pointed out. So I, I think that those kinds of clues in a question stem would be telling that maybe the answer was staph scalded skin. Awesome. Thanks for your great tips. You know, I have other friends that are not dermatologists that say, there's no dermatology emergencies. Well, I'll say, listen to this episode and you'll learn a little <laughs> bit more about that. So, so appreciate those tips. Dr. High, you know, as you, you're a practicing physician and an attorney, so I'm really happy to have you here because medical legal issues is a topic that no residents really ever get in their training. They go through three years and never get a lecture on this. And I think it's so important. So would love to discuss this with you and really help the residents out there who are in the field every day. First thing I want to ask is, just generally, how often do dermatologists get sued compared to other specialties? Well, you know, I, I just practice medicine. I don't practice law, but I do have a law degree. And I, I may practice law at some point, but I got all the jobs and work I need right now. Uh, but it is important to think about these topics because they do come up from time to time. Fortunately, I'll tell you, in most surveys, including a big one in the National or the New England Journal of Medicine a few 
uh, years ago, dermatology is down there very low in terms of medical malpractice risk. It's down there with family practice and pathology for that matter. It's not a high risk field like neurologic surgery or cardiovascular surgery, surgery but it is something that, you, you know, if you practice long enough, what was shown in some of those surveys is that inevitably something is going to happen. Uh, and that's just a statistical thing. The longer you practice, the more people you encounter, the more one thing will go wrong and catch up with you. So I, I think it is a field that has some risk, but thankfully, probably not the risk of other specialties. Yeah, that makes me feel a little bit better going to work every day. And what kind of things are dermatologists getting sued for? Is it things like, oh, you know, you gave me Botox and now you dro- my eye is drooping, so I'm going to sue you? Or is it, you know, you missed my skin cancer and now I'm, I'm very sick from this, so I'm, I'm going to, you know, bring a lawsuit against you. So I'm just curious about what sorts of things uh, the lawsuits are really about. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one way to think about this, it's not the only way to think about this, but, you know, attorneys are, 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 are businessmen. They have uh, um, light bills, they have copier leases, they have employees that work for them. Um, so, so what they're listening for when somebody calls them about a potential malpractice case is they're listening for damages. There need to be some kind of damages. And if the damages are, I was late for an appointment or I had a completely reversible uh, condition like a little excess droop that resolved itself in a little while, that, then that's not a particularly appealing case, right? That's not going to be something that they settle for millions and millions of dollars. And they have all those expenses uh, to front when they take a case uh, on legally. They, they front the expenses in exchange for a percentage of any collections. So they're not going to be looking for a grudge match or anything like that. I once had a panelist uh, on a panel I hosted here in Denver say, if you're not interested in money, I'm not interested in having you as a client. Now, I knew he would say something controversial like that, uh, um, but he did. Uh, and, and the point was that he needs to work within the system that he has, and he has money to offer you uh, for damages. He can't get your eyeball back. He can't get your right arm back. He can't do any of those things. So he needs to work within the system. So I, I think that you know substantial cases, cases that involve missed cancer and things, are more likely to result in litigation than small little um, offenses here and there. Right. And to your point, you know, if it's a very difficult lesion to diagnose, maybe multiple pathologists have tried to diagnose it and it was a spitz, it was a melanoma, and it turns out, you know, it was a melanoma in the end. I mean, th- those are more gray area cases that are not really as pursued as clear cut, you know, doctor didn't check the patient's legs for some reason and they missed a melanoma in that case. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's generally true. We used to call those Where's Waldo cases in law school. If it's something that's really, really, really hard to prove and find, and most people, even reasonably prudent people, would miss that, that's not a very appealing case. And if you have a case that's a difficult, challenging pigmented lesion, it's been examined by several institutions, many, many people have have acknowledged openly the difficulty of the case, that's not going to be as appealing to an attorney as just a clean whiff, uh, a nevoid melanoma that even with a a moment's look is obviously malignant, uh, but was called a nevus. That's a very appealing case, Uh, a very, very challenging lesion that's been to five or six different experts and everyone's saying, gosh, I'm not really entirely sure. That's not as appealing a case. I've heard heard people say that mistakes are are unavoidable, but you certainly want the mistake to be defensible. And I think what they're saying is if you have a challenging case and you acknowledge openly the difficulty, that's a different situation than just a clean whiff, something that could have been solved with a little bit more attention to detail. Thank you, Dr. High, for all this great information. But let's take a pause and hear a word from our sponsor. Castle Biosciences is a proud supporter of this podcast and its residents by supporting continuing education and collegial discussions. 
Castle provides clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. For more information, visit castletestinfo.com. So I want to ask you now about, you know, how dermatology residents and really practicing dermatologists as a whole can decrease their risk of a lawsuit. And the first thing I want to ask about specifically is note writing, because everyone hates writing notes, but notes are more than just, you know, what you did to the patient at the last visit, right? They're medical legal instruments. So from a medical legal perspective, how can we all write better notes? Yeah, I, I think notes are important. And uh, I, I give a lot of talks, different places. I'm speaking to you from somewhere other than Colorado right now. Uh, and, and at the end of some of these talks, people come up and say, how can I write a really defensible a medical note and and do it in an almost no time. And I, I say, well, there's really a, a, a big paradox there that I can't resolve. A really good note's probably going to take you a little bit longer than a really shoddy note. Uh, I have no doubt of that. Uh, but you might save the time and certainly save the pain of depositions and worry and stress and contacting your attorney and just bit generally neglecting your family and worrying about medical legal matters uh, if you don't take that extra time. We have a huge advantage in that the doctor controls the chart. Now, that's been balanced more recently by patient access through electronic programs, things like that. Um, but it's not unusual maybe once a year for a patient to contact me and say they want a note written differently. And, and if it's really, really important that the note stay the same, then I say, no, that's not my recollection of the visit at all. Um, so, so you really need to use that note to uh, identify the issues and the thought process and the findings and the important things that really make your medical care defensible. And that's what you want to do with a note. And does it take a little bit longer? I think it probably does. Um, but I think it's time well spent in the end. Yeah, that's a great point. It is time well spent. I had a friend, a colleague who's in a different specialty, was unfortunately involved in a lawsuit with a lot of other doctors. And he had to go in into court and they put his whole note up in front of the whole jury and they saw his kind of uh, abbreviations and things that he wrote. So obviously that's more of an exception than the rule, but it's just good to keep these things in mind. Take a little extra time to put some effort into these notes. I agree. And I, I think one thing with our new electronic forum. And keep in mind that when I started as an attending, I'm considerably older than you, Nick. I, we, we hand wrote notes. Uh, so, so uh, you know, that, that's really ancient times. But uh, I, I think that a really important thing with the electronic verbiage that just kind of created in the chart is to make sure you don't have any conflicts. It's very, very embarrassing when in one paragraph you say the, the patient's uh, not pregnant, not seeking pregnancy, and you're going to prescribe some type of acne medicine. And then the very next paragraph, uh, you have them listed as, you know, uh, 32 weeks gestation or something like that. It makes, makes it look sloppy and contradictions like that invite problems because they allow attorneys working against you to assert that if that's shoddy and in conflict, I wonder what else about the visit was shoddy and in conflict. So I really encourage people and I try to get the residents to do it here at our institution to give the note one more look and make sure that there's nothing that's just openly and blatantly in contradiction. You'd be surprised what you find uh, when you actually drill down on some of these notes. Yeah, I like that. And it's funny what you say about writing versus typing. You know, I forgot that you, how to use a pen because I type so many notes. So <laughs> when someone asks me to fill out a checkout, I go, can I, can I type this into Word? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The residents here at Colorado are always surprised to learn that we used to have paper charts stacked all around the room. That's funny. So Dr. High, can you give me a couple of more tips on how to decrease your chance of a lawsuit as a resident when you get into practice? Well, yeah, I, I think at one point, uh, maybe residents were fairly insulated from litigation. I think uh, tradition was to have the attending kind of 
answer for the case. And, and I think nowadays, there's many, many reasons that that probably isn't the case. Uh, I think nowadays, you know, residents are intimately involved in care to a greater degree. It's provable that they were intimately involved in care to a greater degree, i.e. in some of these electronic medical records, you can even tell who had the case open, how long they had it open, and all the different versions of the note are saved sequentially. So I, I think residents are also now, at least in Colorado, licensed, at least with training licenses. So I, I, I think that all that makes the resident kind of more exposed in terms of at least being drug into the matter, at least initially before the institution maybe uh, uh, takes on the responsibility. But I, I do think residents want to be more aware that maybe things will involve them more than they used to. They may hear stories about residents being knocked out of lawsuits early and not having to participate too much. And I, I worry that maybe those days are over a little bit. So I would encourage them to really, really be aware of what they're writing, what they're typing, how many versions they have. And like I said, I, I, it's hard for me to encourage it, but just spend a little tiny extra time before you close that note to make sure that any kind of major mistakes are resolved. It's not uncommon for me to contact a resident and say, hey, you know, half the note, the physical exam was copied forward from the last visit and never altered. So we have cancers that have already been removed described in the physical exam. Uh, and, and again, that just kind of contradictory stuff really exposes you to litigation. So I would encourage everyone to adopt some type of practice where they take one final look Will it take a couple more minutes? It probably will. And multiplied by eight or nine patients, which is what we expect of most of the residents, that's probably 20 minutes. But again, it's 20 minutes now or hours and hours of deposition later. Yes. And we've had some really great uh, discussions and Thank you again for the great points and great teaching points. But these were some serious things that maybe are not the happiest things. But I want to end on more of a happy note. And that note is you finished dermatology residency. You've done great. You get a ton of job offers, a ton of contracts. But you, you open up the contract and it's 30 pages with, with very complicated language and words like non-compete and tail coverage and things like that. So just want to talk for a couple of minutes on how you handle your first contract. And the first question is, should you have a lawyer look it over? I think so. Uh, I think that's pretty important and, and a worthwhile $350 or $400 investment in a couple, you know, hour or two uh, time from the from the attorney. I think that's pretty important. Uh, I, you mentioned some of the important things. Non-competes are very important. Uh, you know, patient mix, reimbursement. But one thing I think that's going to emerge out of this whole COVID situation uh, that nobody used to really talk much about is force majeure uh, portions of contracts that say if something unforeseeable, an act of God is what force majeure means, uh, like, like a pandemic happens, maybe they're allowed to dissolve your contract, leaving you without employment. Uh, so I, I think force majeure issues may be something to explore because I'm not sure we've seen our last pandemic, unfortunately. Maybe we have. I hope we have. But I'm not entirely convinced. Right. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. How about the four corners uh, rule? Is that something that yeah. residents should be aware about? Yeah, that's interesting you know that. Uh, so that varies from state to state, and that is uh, um, you know, a, a theory, a, a doctrine of contract law uh, that says you know, some states go only entirely by what's within the four corners of the document. They don't look at anything else. And other states look at parole evidence, which means other 
conversations, emails, texts, things that you had to try to understand the meeting of the minds that occurred with a contract. And you need to find out what type of state you're in. Uh, and, and certainly it varies widely. Um, but, but you do need to know because if you're working on, let's say, call schedule through a bunch of text messages, oh, I don't want call any more than every fourth weekend and all, all those kinds of things, but they're not in the document and you're in a four-corner state, then you have a problem. If you're in a parole evidence state, then you could introduce those other pieces of evidence and say, well, that's not really what our meeting of the minds was. And that's what uh, you know courts are always interested in. What was the actual meeting of the minds? What was the understanding between these individuals? And then the other thing that's really, really nice is courts often look at the difference in power between the two parties. And, and so if you're the little guy just signing the contract as an individual and there's a large corporation or group or something like that, uh, they generally construe things to favor this the, the disadvantaged party, which in this case would be the individual. So those are important things. Four Corners Rule is a good thing to think of. I'm impressed that you knew it. Uh, and uh, it's something to find out about for sure. The other thing that's really, really simple is some states are really, really hard hard on non-competes and other states aren't. And that's probably worth looking into. It's a very simple Google search, right? Uh, at least to get a flavor, even if you're not an attorney, have no training, at least get a flavor about professional non-competes, medical non-competes. And as I mentioned, some states just simply aren't interested in the matter. They think medicine should be kind of free of those issues. Other states will hold up a reasonable non-compete uh, agreement. Now, it won't hold up a 10-year, $8 million liquidated damages non-compete. That doesn't make much sense. But a reasonable one for a year, for a reasonable radius, that might be upheld in certain states. I feel ready to negotiate my first contract tomorrow. This is awesome. So can you give me one more, uh, one more example or one more point that we, residents should be aware of when looking at their contract that they may not, you know, that they need to really be serious about or they can't, can't overlook? Well, I, I do think the force majeure thing is important. So I would look for that. I think it's appearing in contracts here in Denver and Colorado that never used to have that issue raised at all. But the other important thing I think is more conceptual. People often zero in and they contact me uh, for kind of information about what I think about a percentage of collections or this or that. Um, but you do want to make sure you have the whole concept clear because, uh, you, you know, if you may be hard, fighting real, real hard for 42% versus 40% or 40% versus 35%. But if somebody else is controlling the patient mix, for example, and you're getting a whole bunch of low denomination payers, uh, low low percentage payers, uh, then that's going to be a big issue that you never ever, you may have fought desperately for this last 2%, um, but your payers are all very, very low, uh, low payers. And then you're going to have a, a kind of a problem where, where you didn't think you had one. So make sure you don't lose the forest through the trees, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, point well taken. This has been such an awesome episode. I thought I knew a little bit about this, but I know so much more now. So I think me and the rest of my residents are going to really benefit from your knowledge. But Dr. High, I've got one more question for you. Mm -hmm. I know you practice in Colorado, and I think Colorado is a gorgeous state. I love the mountains. So I want to ask you, what's your favorite thing to do in your free time in Colorado? Well, you know, I, I was born here uh, and raised here, so I, I think I've been almost everywhere in Colorado once, and boy, has it changed a lot in the last 50 years, uh, for sure. But, uh, you know, one of my favorite things is the summertime, and I love to go to my son's baseball games and my daughter's uh, basketball games, and, and I just uh, really am proud of what they're doing, and they're, they're really good athletes, and they really love their sports, and I, I just really want to support that right now. 
That's great. I'd love to hear that. I can't wait to get back out to Colorado when ski season starts. Again, Dr. High, thank you so much. This is really going to help out residents. So thank you again. Great. Thank you for having me. Castle Biosciences is a proud sponsor of Fred and its residents with innovative approaches to improving patient care. Castle Biosciences is transforming the treatment of dermatological cancers by offering clinically actionable molecular tests that improve patient outcomes. For more information, visit castletestinfo.com.